Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Let's begin with class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your love, and I thank you so much for our friends and and supporters who uh, uh, love this message and love the truth about your kingdom and are working to support and share and advance this. I pray that you will join us today and enlighten our minds as we study, be with those online that are watching, that they can uh, be effective in their community in sharing this as well. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Today we're doing lesson number eight in the Bible study guide on death, dying, and the future hope. And the title of the lesson this week, lesson eight, is the New Testament hope. And the memory text is from 1 John 5, 11, and 12. And it reads, and this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son, who does not have the Son of God, does not have life. Does this text trigger any questions in your mind? Like, why would God need to give us eternal life if we already have it? Does this text make any sense at all if the common belief that humans are immortal or already have immortal souls is true? If that if that's true, then does this text even make sense? That's not true. Right, it's not true, but but that's the common belief that most Christianity holds. I wonder how, how, how they understand this text. And as we've said before, what does it say about God if he did create Adam and Eve in Eden with immortality, with foreknowledge, knowing that they would sin, and then their children and descendants, billions of them, would spend forever in torment. What would it say about God that he created such a circumstance? Or, what does it say about God if he didn't pre-think that possibility and just caught him off guard? Either way, there is nothing about the common belief of the natural immortality of the soul that says anything good about God. Nothing. It, it's, 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 and so we, we should text like this, bring that back to our mind. But does our memory verse about having eternal life only in Jesus apply to all human beings or only those who have lived since the time of Jesus? All. So Enoch, Elijah, Moses, they received eternal life. Did they receive it through Jesus or through some other means? Through Jesus. And the Jews, do the Jews have a pathway to heaven that bypasses Jesus? No. You know, you, you, you should ask evangelical friends that it will really stump them. Because it's a common teaching in certain Christian circles that in the Old Testament, salvation came through the animal sacrifices. But in the New Testament times, it comes through Jesus. And in some circles, it's even taught that there'll come a time when there's a new Jewish dispensation after the Christians are taken from the world where they begin offering sacrifices again as a means of salvation. So it's an interesting point. This text you you can use to ask questions to our friends. Hey, is it true? And our view, of course, is that all humans are saved through Jesus. God created one human race. He created Adam. Eve was taken from Adam. The two of them together had children, and every human being is born of their line. And there is one sin condition, which entered through Adam and Eve, 
and we're all born in sin and conceived in iniquity, Psalms 51.5, and there's only one solution for this sin condition, and that solution is Jesus Christ. That, that's very straightforward. Tim, even if they never know his name as Jesus. Yes, that, that's correct. It, do, it doesn't matter whether they actually call him Yahshua, Joshua, Jesus, Messiah, or actually never even heard the Bible's story. Paul tells us in Romans 1, 20, that God's divine nature is seen in what he has made so that men are without excuse, and he continues his thought, and there's no chapter divisions in what Paul's writing, and in chapter 2, verse 12, Paul says that those who have not heard the law, the Torah, the scripture, but do by nature the things contained in the law, are a law unto themselves, showing that law has been written upon their heart. Well, that's the new covenant. I will write my law upon your heart and, uh, and, and upon your mind, and no longer will a man need to tell his brother and know the Lord, because they will all know me. And that's eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God. And so the point being is that, and what Lori's bringing up, is that the Holy Spirit is working through all avenues of truth to bring people to a knowledge of God. If they come to that knowledge of God, then the Holy Spirit takes the victories of Christ and reproduces them in them. And the, the pathway to truth, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, if they learn about God through nature... Well, who is the member of the God who created nature? All things were made by him and for him, and without anything, uh, without him nothing is made that has been made. So if they find truth about God in nature, Jesus is the one who wrote it there as well. And so they come to the knowledge of God through Christ, whether it's through the written word or the living word or the word of God written into nature. And then they receive from the Holy Spirit the victory of Christ. So it's still all through Christ, whether they actually cognitively understand that or not. Now, why is it that if we have Jesus, we have life? And why is it that those who don't have Jesus don't have life? I mean, these words, if those who have the Son has life, have life. Why? Is it because those who have Jesus have the proper legal documents to present to the Immigration Control Authority at the gates of the New Jerusalem? No, their choice. Is it because they have some uh, something of enough value to the Father, specifically the shed blood of his Son, that when this blood of extreme and supreme value is offered to the Father, the Father will be influenced in some way to let us into heaven, whether that's by legal payment or satisfaction of justice or appeasement of wrath or some other means. Is, is this what it means to have Jesus? We have, when we have Jesus, we have the right payment to offer the Father. Is that what it means? No. I heard one no. No, 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 resounding no. <laughs> Is it a bargain with God? We offer God the blood of his son in exchange, he gives us eternal life. No, no. Well, why does having the son mean having eternal life? Why? Jesus as the creator is the source of life. Jesus is the source of life, that's true. So what does it mean then to have the son? What does it mean to have the son? Those who have the Son have life, have eternal life. Baptized by the Holy Spirit to receive the Holy Spirit into the temple of your heart and mind. Yeah. Okay. okay. I like that. I like that very much. Can you think of other places in the Bible where Jesus speaks of eternal life? And what, what eternal life is? What eternal life is? How about this? Matthew nineteen sixteen and seventeen. Now a man came to Jesus and asked, "Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life?" Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. 
Those are Jesus' words. Is law-keeping the way to achieve eternal life? If we work really hard and keep the right rules and the right commandments, does that mean we can obtain eternal life? No. No. There seems to be some hesitancy there. That young man kept all the commandments he believed, but he didn't enter into eternal life. Yes, but but Jesus still said, if you want to enter into life, obey the commandments. What commandments? Uh, 1 John 5, 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Yes, so what does it mean to have to have the son that's what we're talking about and jesus is talking if you want to enter life obey the commandments uh if we have the right commandments the right commandments all ten and we obey all ten does that mean we have eternal life i've heard many adventists use texts like this one in relation to the sabbath to elevate the sabbath and sabbath keeping to a litmus test of having jesus and being faithful and loyal to jesus and thereby having eternal life is Sabbath keeping a sign that we have eternal life? No. Yes. Okay. Did the Jews who crucified Christ go to synagogue on the wrong day of the week? No. Did they have the wrong Sabbath? No. Not about no. the wrong day of the week. Why can we not achieve or, or why can we not achieve eternal life by law keeping? It's only with Christ in us that we can even do what's right and, and let the law abide in us. So what you said is true. It's only with Christ in us that we can actually do what's right. So why can we not achieve law keeping, excuse me, eternal life by law keeping? Why can't we do that? We're terminal. Uh-huh. I like where you go with that. Therefore, yes, that's yes, we're terminal. Can law keeping cure the problem? No. no. So if you had an example, you have cancer from smoking cigarettes will quitting smoking cure the cancer no 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 No. Uh, our our obedience to the laws that are good do not cure the problem that's already there does that make sense to everyone okay so there's no cure for the sin problem in law keeping this is the core issue between Satan's counterfeit religions and true Christianity. True Christianity is based on God's design laws for life. God is the creator and how he built life to operate. And those uh, and and we understand that God's laws are what um, life and health operate upon. And sin transgresses those laws and results in ruin and death, unless remedied by Christ. If we substitute, however, the human law... The imposed rule idea, made up rules that require punishments, then, uh, then what happens is we create systems of theology that are designed to satisfy some legal requirement, and things become very behaviorally oriented. And people will focus on law-keeping as a means of salvation and, real, and fail to realize that Ten Commandments were simply given to expose the condition, the sin sickness, to diagnose us, not to cure us. Paul makes this very clear in, in multiple places. Describes that uh, how what a great law keeper he was. Pharisee of Pharisees, keeping all the rules. Thought he was really righteous until he his mind rested upon the tenth commandment, "Thou shalt not covet." And he realized there was no behavior or deed 
he could do to keep that command. He realized the law was not, act, was not actually about the deeds or behaviors, but about the heart, all of them. And that's where he died, so to speak, because he realized all of his hard work was meaningless without a change of heart. And therefore, he understood that the law, and he wrote in several places, that the written law was given to expose sin or diagnose sin. And you can read one of those places in 1 Timothy uh, 1, 8 through 11. Uh, like an MRI, it, where MRIs were created for sick people to expose sickness, not for healthy people. And so the law was given for the unrighteous, not for the righteous. And so, in Romans chapter 7, Paul, I think, makes this even more clear. And you can follow along in any version you want. I'm going to read from, starting in verse 4, out of the remedy. And and notice the purpose and how he describes what the law is doing. And and then what happens with law keeping, if you try to keep the law as as a remedy. Therefore, your selfish, fear-ridden heart died when you accepted the truth revealed by Christ's death. And you received a new heart from him who was raised from the dead in order that you might grow in character to be like Jesus and live to honor God. For when we were controlled by the infection of fear and selfishness, which resulted from distrust, the destructive passions revealed by the law were ravaging our bodies. We were terminally ill and spreading death wherever we went. But now, as we die to the distrust, fear, and selfishness that once bound us, the law no longer diagnoses us as infected and terminal. In fact, the law now confirms that we have a new heart, not by observing rules, but created within by the Spirit. We are now healthy and loving like Jesus. What shall we say then? Is the law evil? And selfish because it increases the amount of evil and selfishness we see? Absolutely not. I would not have known what evil and selfishness looked like if it wasn't for the diagnostic efficacy of the law. I would not have realized that coveting was evil and selfish. The law didn't say don't covet. But selfishness, taking advantage of the fact that the law is only a diagnostic instrument and not a remedy, magnified every covetousness desire within me. For apart from the diagnostic ability of the law, sin is unrecognizable. Once I thought I was healthy and free from the infection of distrust, fear, and selfishness. But then the commandment examined me, exposed how utterly infected I was, and and diagnosed me as terminal. I discovered that the very commandment, given only to diagnose my condition, I had unwittingly attempted to use as a cure. And thus my condition only worsened. For selfishness, taking advantage of the fact that the commandment could only diagnose and not cure, deceived me into thinking I could be cured by working to keep the commandments. But instead, my terminal state only worsened. So understand this. The law diagnoses perfectly, and the commandment is the standard of what is right and good, set apart by God to reveal what is evil and destructive. Did the law, which did good by diagnosing what was wrong with me, become the source of my terminal condition? Of course not. It only exposed what was already in me, so that I could recognize how totally decayed, putrid, and near death I was, and so that through the lens of the commandment, I might become utterly disgusted with evil and selfishness and long for a cure. Does that make sense to everybody? Yeah. 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 Okay, and that's the dynamic. It would be like, uh, back in the day when I went to medical school, one of the hospitals they had out there, if you walked in the hospital, in in the lobby, it was a giant seal. 
And the seal was the seal of the old tuberculosis hospital when it was built back uh, the turn of the previous century. And the ter- when you had tuberculosis, you would go to the hospital and you would, you'd be basically quarantined until you got better or, or died. And, uh, and, uh, but imagine if you had tuberculosis and you went in and they, and they had on the wall this list of things that is evidence that you are well. If you take the treatment, they, they will tell you, if you take our treatment, you will not cough. You will not have fever. You will not have chills. You will not have bloody sputum. And imagine somebody looking at that, and, and, and you could say, thou shalt not have. Okay, Thou shalt not have all these things. And somebody looking at it and going, you know what? When the doctor comes around, I want to be sure that I am, I meet all that stuff. So when the doctor comes around, I'm going to work really hard not to cough. Mm, hold my breath so I won't, because thou shalt not cough. I better not cough. Okay? You understand all these things that, that you won't do when you're well are, are described as symptoms of a condition of the sickness. That's what sin is. That's what the Ten Commandments do. They expose the symptoms of fear and selfishness operating in our heart. And we have the heart renewed, we stop doing those things. And that's what we look like. When we have God's love in our heart, we love him with all our heart, mind, soul. We don't have any other gods before him. We don't take his name in vain. Uh, we don't make graven images and bow down to them. We remember his Sabbath and we keep it holy. And so when we love our neighbor, we don't do these things. And that's all it's describing. But sadly, many look at the rules and say, I'm going to work really hard to look like those rules. And what happens when you do that, instead of taking the remedy, just like Paul wrote, you get worse. (laughs) And that's what happens to legalistic Christianity. So Jesus connected eternal life with obeying the commandments, though. If you want eternal life, obey the commandments, he said. What is the basis of the Ten Commandments? So notice this exchange from Jesus and a lawyer. Uh, And this is in Luke 10, 25 to 28. On one occasion, an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus said. Do this and you will live. Is there a connection between loving God and our our neighbors and commandment keeping? Are they connected? And I just described it. When you love others, this is how you live. When you love others, you don't murder them. You don't take their you don't bear false witness against them. You don't steal. You don't you don't covet. You actually celebrate when they succeed because you share and you're happy for them when you love them. So we can see that love for God and our neighbors does not is not achieved by rule keeping or following a list of rules, but when you love, you live in certain ways. So what enables us to love others? Christ in us. Uh, that's exactly right. The ability to love comes from God when we are one back to faith in him. And thus Jesus said in John seventeen three. Now, this is eternal life. We're still focusing on that question. I'm connecting the issue of if you have the Son, you have eternal life. Jesus said eternal life is the commandments. The commandments are loving God. And this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom thou sent. And we know 
that biblical knowing is intimate connection with, not knowing about. And then Jesus prays a little bit later in John 17. We read a little bit later. He prays the following. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us. Now, how many times do you pray? You pray, Lord, come into my heart. Salvation is having Jesus in me. We just said that several times. How many times do you pray, Lord, help me be in you? You ever pray that prayer? Lord, help me be in you today. But this is what Jesus said. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. May they be brought into complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. What does it mean to be in Jesus and in the Father and them in us? What does it mean? Yeah, I was wondering about that because in Ephesians 1 it says, For he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. And then it goes on to say, For he predestined us before the creation of the world that we should be holy and without blame in Christ Jesus. I mean, yes. I mean it refers like seven times I counted about Jesus doing things for us like that, but I don't really know how generally we could understand that to be remedy. So Jesus is praying for us to be in them. May they also be in us. And for them to be in us, we and them, them and me, you and us, all of us together. <laughs> is this speaking of intracellular physical occupation it is not it is speaking of union unity of heart mind, motive, values desires, principles, practices having the law of God written upon our hearts and so in Hebrews it says I will put my law on their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God they will be my people no longer will a man teach his neighbor and say to his brother Know the Lord, for they will all know me. Jesus, in this same prayer, life eternal, that they might know you, the only true God, in each other. I will put my law in their minds. They will know me. Do you see how this is all kind of describing the same thing? Which is that we, in our inmost being, where we have the values and things we cherish the most, are transformed to have the principles, methods, motives, values, love of God as our own. We have come into union with them. And this is beautifully described in the book Christ Object Lessons in the page 311, where the author writes the following. When we submit ourselves to Christ, the heart is united with his heart. The will is merged with his will. The mind becomes one with his mind. The thoughts are brought into captivity to him. And we live his life. This is what it means to be clothed with the garment of his righteousness. 
Then as the Lord looks upon us, he sees not the fig leaf garment, not the nakedness and deformity of sin, but his own robe of righteousness, which is perfect obedience to the law of Jehovah. This author connects to everything we've been talking in one paragraph. If you want eternal life, you have the Son. If you want eternal life, you keep the commandments. If you want eternal life, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. If you want eternal life, you know God. If you want eternal life, you have the law of God put in your hearts and minds. If you want eternal life, you have unity. In We are in God. He is in us. We are one. Do you see it's all saying the same thing? Our thoughts, desires, um, feelings, we're brought into unity with Christ. Connect in a faith relationship. This is transforming the inner person, healing, restoring, you can call it cleansing, if you will, through the through the work of God, Jesus Christ, being applied via the work of the Spirit. This is what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.21, that we become the righteousness of God. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. This is actual it's real, it's transformational. God has had heroes through history that we have recorded in Scripture that experience this. Job, Stephen, when he's being stoned, face radiating like an angel. Uh, Daniel, three friends in the fiery furnace. The, this type of unity, friendship with God, he's wanting. And for the people preparing for translation, he has an entire generation of people who are brought to this experience with God. They are brought into unity. And what is another name for what God is doing to bring us into unity or oneness with Him? What's another name for that? Healing. Healing, okay. What's a theological name for that? Atonement. 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 Yes. At one meant. The day of atonement is the day of bringing to to oneness with God, what was alienated from God, bringing us back into, and that's the whole plan of salvation taught in the sanctuary service. Sinners out here are through the work of the high priest, which is Jesus, and the lamb sacrifice, which is Jesus, through the work of that, brings the sinner back into the most holy place and oneness with God. That's the whole simple teaching of what is being taught there. Doesn't it start with a surrender to begin with, surrendering self and, and giving your will or your um, mind, open your mind to everything God has to say and then, then taking that in, uh, what God has to say into yourself. So individually, yeah. individually, yeah. So the salvation of the human species, of course, started with God. Okay, who's the Lamb of God sacrificed in the world? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So, but but individually, it starts with the Holy Spirit working on our hearts through the avenues of truth that we are exposed to: Scripture, friends, other life experiences, uh, God's revelations in nature, as it says in Romans one twenty. The Holy Spirit is bringing truth to our minds to bring us to the point that we have conviction, and then. We make that decision to surrender or to reject, which causes hardening. That's exactly right. And when we surrender and open the heart and invite Christ in, then the Holy Spirit comes in, and we have the experience we just read about, or our thoughts being changed, our desires being changed, our our will being empowered and directed by the the Holy Spirit to align with, with the things of God. That's exactly right. 
Death is just the opposite of life. If you have the sun and all these things we've just gone through and what it means, we have life. Death is caused by just the opposite. By not knowing God. By not having unity with him. By not having his law reproduced in our hearts. And what causes that? Lies believed. Lies of Satan that we believe cause the break of the circle of love and trust and continues to inflame or infect with fear and selfishness. But believing lies about God does not necessarily mean people stop believing in God. I'm going to say that again. Believing lies about God does not necessarily mean people stop believing in God. You all get that? Yep. Consider this for a moment. If we had a time machine and we could go back in time to Crucifixion Friday, stand at the foot of the cross beside those abusers who were crucifying Jesus and mocking him, that we read about in the scripture, how they mocked him while he was there. If you could stand next to one of them and ask the following questions of them, what do you think they would say? Hey, do you believe in God? Absolutely. We are, com- we are so committed to God that we seek to root out heresy, and this man's a heretic. Well, do you believe in the Bible? Of course This man refused to follow what the Bible teaches. He wouldn't stone a woman caught in adultery. That's why he has to be killed. Do you believe in the Sabbath? Well, absolutely. And this man wouldn't correct his disciples from harvesting grain on the Sabbath. We have to kill him. Do you believe in the sanctuary and its role in God's plan of salvation? Well, of course. And this man threatened to destroy the temple. And we can't allow anyone to threaten us like that. Go down the list. Go down the list. What was the problem with the beliefs and the belief system that the Jewish crucifiers held? There wasn't one specific doctrinal point. The problem was they didn't know God. They believed in God, but they didn't know him. They didn't have intimacy. They weren't friends like Abraham. They weren't friends like Moses. They weren't friends like Daniel. And every single one of their doctrines then got processed through the imperial, imposed, punishing God construct. And rule-breaking must be punished in that construct. The God, the sacrifices were there to appease or pay penalties. And, the, and, and, and because of the law of worship, when you worship a God like that, you become like that. And what did they do? They had a fraudulent trial. They bribed witnesses. They intimidated the Roman governor. They killed the Son of God. And then they demanded he be taken off the cross before at sunset so they could keep the Sabbath. And they did that because their Sabbath-keeping made them feel good about themselves because they could prove how righteous they were because they were keeping the right law that the Bible says they should keep and honoring the God of creation by keeping the, the law after they just killed the creator of the Sabbath. That's what law-keeping does. Understand, Satan's lies are not restricted to those who do not believe in God. 
They're not restricted to groups outside the people that God has called for mission. God called the Jewish nation for mission, and Satan's lies were there. So understand, Satan's lies have deeply infected Christianity because Christianity holds the truth. And wherever God is revealing truth, this is where Satan is working most aggressively to try to oppose it. Yes or no? Yeah. And we have the exact same problem the Jews had 2,000 years ago. Satan has infected Christianity with the idea that God's law works like human law. And God is the source of inflicted pain, suffering, defects and deformity and death. And that God needs something done to him in order to get God to forgive. This is ultimately paganism. It's how Satan sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God, as he, Paul wrote about in 2 Thessalonians 2.4. Second paragraph in the lesson says the following, Thus for Christ and the apostles, the Christian hope was not a new hope, but rather the unfolding of an, the ancient hope already nurtured by patriarchs and prophets. For example, Christ mentioned that Abraham foresaw and rejoiced to see his day. J- Jude states that Enoch prophesied about the second coming. And the book of Hebrews speaks of the heroes of faith as having expected a heavenly reward that they would not receive until we receive ours. This statement would be meaningless if their souls were already with the Lord in heaven. Yes, the same hope of salvation we have in Jesus is the hope that all humans through all history have had, as we've already explained. One human race, one sin condition, one savior, one solution. But what do you think about the argument that the lesson makes there in the last sentence um, about about the heroes stating that uh, this statement would be meaningless if their souls were already with the Lord in heaven? Do you think that's a good argument to bring forward? Really? Yes, no, maybe. I don't know. Well, read Hebrews. Read this Hall of Faith. It says in Hebrews 11.39, quote, after this long list of people, these were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Yeah. Of these faithful folks, the Bible says none of them received what has been promised. And who's included in the list? Enoch. Enoch, who is in heaven, has not received what's been promised. But didn't Enoch receive eternal life? Yes. Are they asleep? <laughs> yes. So the fact that Enoch, who is in who is in heaven, is on the list of heroes who did not receive the promise, that fact undermines the last point of the lesson that suggests if their souls are in heaven, this is meaningless text. No, it's not. It's got meaning because the promise isn't actually restricted and only focused on eternal life. What is the promise that they haven't received? Well, read back in Hebrews. This is Hebrews 11, same chapter, verses 13 through 16. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were looking for a better country, a heavenly one. What is the promise of God? That the meek shall live forever in heaven. 
Inherit. Ooh, that the meek shall inherit the earth. The promise given to Abraham is this land to you and your descendants, this planet to you and your descendants. Jesus prayed for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. God has promised to not only deliver us individually from sin, but to cleanse and renew the earth from sin and make earth our home by bringing God's government and God's kingdom to earth. Then we can live in a sin-free earth, a home without sickness, pain, suffering, exploitation, crime, where everyone loves their neighbor, a truly free and safe land, a better land than what we have here. That is what the heroes were longing for. And that is yet to be received. And so I, I, I just want to point that out. Enoch has not yet received the promise because this earth hasn't been made new yet. And the more we become like Jesus on this earth today, the more he heals us, the more this current earth torments our souls. The less true peace we have in this wicked and evil place. Yes, we have peace with God while we're here, but we have less peace with the world the closer we come to Christ. You remember what the Bible says about Lot in 2 Peter 2, 7-9. through 9. It says, Lot, a righteous man who is distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. Have you not been tormented the last several years as we see such ugly, wicked, lawless, and perverse things happening in this world? It torments my soul. Does it torment yours? (laughs) Monday's lesson. Monday's lesson focuses our attention on the promise of Jesus that he will come again. Are you looking forward? Are you still an Adventist looking for the second Advent? Do you believe it's soon? Amen. Oh, yes. Yes. What? Why would you believe it's soon? If someone said, look, you know, Christians ever since Christ said Paul in the New Testament, they were thinking it was soon. And look, here we are. Why would you think? What evidence would you say to somebody with signs of the times that Christ is coming soon? What do you have? Well, I'm 67, so he's going to be coming pretty soon for me. (laughs) Okay, so we're not talking about dying and sleeping in the grave and the next moment you see Christ. We're talking about his second coming and eradicating the sin problem, the, the promise of his return, the dead rising and meeting him in the air. Why do you think that's coming soon? What evidence do you have? What's the reason? Society seems to be uh, leaving the basic principles of God's word to the place where most of humanity seems to be believing Satan's lies. Not so we see wickedness abounding. Right. right. The we love see the Holy of so many is going waxing so cold. cold. Okay, the love of many is waxing cold. Okay, Jesus prophesied about that. The love of many will wax cold. We are certainly seeing the human race becoming more narcissistic and self-centered than perhaps any time in human history. What else? The last bastion of liberty, the United States, is becoming not a refuge anymore. So so this is one of the key ones that Lori is, is highlighting right now. 
throughout throughout human history, before the cross, since the cross, you will find that there is a historic pattern where the unrighteous always attack and persecute the righteous. Whether it was Egypt enslaving the Jews, whether it was Babylon and Medo-Persia enslaving the Jews, whether it was Rome occupying the land, whether it was the Roman uh, church going to the Crusades and, and going after the, uh, the reformers and so forth and so on. Unrighteous always used authority, power, and coercion to persecute the righteous. That's a pattern of history. Yes or no? Yes. So um, the persecution of the righteous... What would make the persecution of the righteous at the end time stand out different from the persecution of the righteous through history? And here's the difference. Every time prior to the final end, when the unrighteous are being persecuted, excuse me, the righteous are being persecuted by the unrighteous, there was always some place on earth the righteous could flee to and establish a land of liberty and freedom. The United States being the last bastion or land of liberty being established on civil and religious liberty was the the place of freedom. But when the United States joins the other powers of the world and betrays its constitutional founding principles and becomes a persecuting power, there is no place left on the planet for righteous to flee and establish godly principles. The whole world at that point will enter into the persecution of the righteous. And that will be the difference. And I think the COVID situation demonstrated how quickly a worldwide coalition of different governments can come together on an agreement on a topic and begin applying the same coercive principles and practices to their own citizenry to violate their consciences under various economic and other pressures, no one buying or selling so they serve a certain mark. If that didn't wake up godly Bible folk people, I don't know what will, but it was a clear practice run for what's coming. And what saddens me is that so many in in the church, including the Adventist church, seem to defend that as a righteous action when it was clearly a a coalition of beastly powers uniting over common principles uh, to coerce the consciences of people. And so, and you see how fast it can happen. How quick. And it's going to happen again. So when the United States joins and all the world does this, you can tell this is not the same thing. Yes, hand up. What would have happened if our church did stand up for truth and not close. So that's a hypothetical that's in the past, and there's no way to be able to answer what would have happened. If you said what could have happened, we can go and speculate on what could, but there's no way to know what would have happened. Uh, my own personal belief is it was an opportunity if the Adventist leadership would have actually embraced the truths that we teach and the whole church institution worldwide that has stood up for these principles against the coercive force, it was an opportunity for the entire world attention to be drawn to the unique message of the Adventist church. And I think the three angels' messages could have lightened the world at that time, and we could have actually done what Peter said, hasten the day for the Lord to come, because we would have drawn the, the, the world's attention to the question, not the question of COVID, not the question of viral diseases, not the question of vaccine good, vaccine bad. That's all relevant question. The question of the methods that we are willing to use and how we treat our neighbor. Will we treat our neighbor with godly love and the principles of God, truth, presenting the love, leaving them free? Or will we use the worldly methods of coercive force to coerce consciences of our neighbor? This is the question that should have been drawn to the world 
which kingdom will we align with? And I think we had an opportunity to draw the worldwide question on that. And what likely would have happened, in my view, um, in, in various parts of the world, it would have been met with much more fierce and stern uh, authoritarian response than in, in the United States. We would have probably had a lot of uh, legal uh, battles in the courts as our institutions would have directed their their resources toward lawyers filing injunctions and it would have fought its way through the courts here in America. Other places, I don't know what would happen. We do know that there's that non-Adventist uh, pastor uh, or, or pastors in Canada who stood up to resist were arrested and thrown in jail for having church services and not shutting their churches down. So other parts of the world may be more authoritarian. So when we think about this, we're talking about the second coming of Christ now. All these various governments, we saw from COVID that these governmental systems are in place worldwide right now. And they can activate very quickly to restrict travel, restrict commerce, restrict attendance. restrict. I mean, your freedoms can be restricted very quickly, yes or no? Yes. yes. Okay, it's all in place right now. So why the delay? Wickedness is abounding. The systems to restrict and abuse are in place. What's the delay? What is God waiting on? And I want you to understand, there's a delay because God is not waiting for the wicked to become more wicked. He is waiting for all those who do, who are savable to become more righteous. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And Peter wrote, and this is out of 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as, un, as some understand slowness. His pa- he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The Lord is waiting, and he's waiting for us to finish taking the true gospel message, the truth about his kingdom of love to the world, so that people with good hearts that haven't settled one way or the other will be sealed into the kingdom of God. So that we will be ready to meet him when he comes in glory and can stand in his presence when he unveils his glory. This is what he's waiting for. And the lesson asks us to read John 14, 1 through 3. So let's read what, what the lesson has asked us to read. John 14, 1 to 3. Let not your heart be troubled. You be- believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Boy, how precious is that promise? Yeah. How, 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 many, how many of you memorized that as a kid? I know I did. Yeah, that's a great one. But, but there's some translation issues here in the King James. Uh, one of the translation issues is the word mansion. Because the, that word, when it wasn't translated wrong at his time, it's just the word has evolved. And when you hear the word mansion, you probably think of some very posh, ornate, large, castle-like dwelling. That is not what it meant in 1611. The word mansion in 1611 actually simply meant a room or a dwelling place. And so many modern translations actually translate it. In my father's house is room for many. That's what it actually means in the Greek. Not 
that he's there building these giant castles for everybody. So, which is what I think sometimes the word mansions lead us to think. So, Jesus was not saying he was going to heaven to start a massive heavenly construction project. <laughs> That's not what he was saying. But I think we, how many times do you, well, you know, I didn't really think about it, but that's kind of what I was thinking. He's built a bunch of houses. We, no, that's not what he was saying. Tim, are he we going to have a mansion in heaven? And then one on earth? Why? You will have a place in heaven. So how, so how long would it take the creator who, who <clears throat> speaks galaxies into existence let there be light? Let the let the sun and the moon and the star how speaks that stuff into existence. How long would it take him to make some buildings? <laughs> well, well, what does that? Okay, I'm making a room. I'm going to break this down. So why don't you just wait? All right. Okay, because I know where you're going. You're going. I'm, I'm walking us through this. Okay, I'm walking us through this. I'll wait. <laughs> does the Bible language of God's in my Father's house? God's house. And you think of that language other places. And it, and this is how kind of I my mind works and how I do study. Well, I want to understand more. I want to see what else the Bible says about that. So do you remember this? Psalms in Psalms 23. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You mean you're going to be stuck in a building in heaven forever? No. Don't want that. Well, Jesus, who spoke the words in John 14 about going to heaven and preparing a place for us, also spoke the words to the seven churches in Revelation. And this is what Jesus spoke through John to the churches in Revelation, in Revelation 3, 11, and 12. And notice, again... The John 14 is about, I will come again and receive you unto myself. This is what he says in, in Revelation 3.11. I am coming soon. So it's the same time frame, same focus. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God. And the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. Twice, Jesus has connected his soon return with preparing the house of the Lord. The house of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And in Revelation, it says that he will make those who overcome a pillar, make them a pillar in the temple, and never will you leave it. You will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Wow, what does that mean? Huh. You think it's like... uh, Maybe Samson uh, in the pagan temple? You remember he was tied by the chain to a pillar and he could never leave it? No. Is that what it's going to be like? Uh, we'll be tied to a, cha- to a pillar with a chain and we can never leave the building for all eternity? Or he will make us into pillars. We will be pillars 
that the thing is resting on, and we will have consciousness, but we kind of just frozen there for all eternity. No. What's well, what it says? Well, could be strong. What's a pillar? It's a well-known are we going to be locked away in some geographic location imprisoned in some building for all eternity no 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 so what does this mean the reason we will never leave the temple is because the temple of god is not built out of inanimate materials like gold and silver it is actually built out of living beings. We become pillars. You heard of the pillars of the faith. We become pillars in God's temple, and we will never leave it because we will never choose to sin again. And thereby, we will never choose to break our connection with God. We will always be part of his temple or his house part of his family forever that's what it means well that one text says we are the temple of god and he dwells in us and we dwell in him that's right and that goes back to the john 17 praying that we'll be in each other in union and we come into union we become living stones built together into a house for the lord peter says that's what he Peter says into a spiritual house. That's uh, 1 Peter two four through five. So we'll be in heaven, being temples with God. Then is that so? Question: Must God do something in heaven to get heaven ready for us, or must God do something in us to get us ready for heaven? There you go. Yes, that's that's we need help. So I go to he- I'm going to heaven to prepare a place for you. Is he? preparing heaven for us or is he working from heaven with all the resources of heaven to prepare us for heaven yeah that is so cool yeah so would he not need to apply to our hearts and minds and characters all the achievements that he's accomplished on our behalf cleansing our spirit temples from sin taking away our guilt removing our shame to rewiring our brains so that our old patterns of destructive behaviors are replaced with godly and healthy patterns is he not working in us to improve us to transform us so that we have new hearts right spirits who love the things of god and hate the things of sin yes yes amen And do you know how else you could describe what I just said? As cleansing the sanctuary. Yes. Oh, yes. 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 There you go. That is what cleansing the sanctuary message is all about. Cleansing the hearts and minds of his people who are the living stones who are being built together in a house for the Lord And we become pillars in which he writes his name, his character upon us because we are like him and our thoughts have been brought into harmony with his and our will is united with his. And we are being cleansed and prepared as a bride for her husband. Remember in Ephesians it talks he's cleansing and washing his bride and preparing her. Right? Yeah. Yep. That's what he's doing. So all these metaphors are teaching the same thing. And what and we're talking about now the day of atonement, the cleansing of the sanctuary, right? Yes? Yes. yes. 
And what is the other major Bible teaching about atonement in the concept of what we read in John 11, excuse me, John 17? I pray they will be in you and me in, in us and me in them, that they will be one as you and I are one. Is there another major, huge biblical teaching about the two becoming one? Marriage. Marriage. Cleansing his bride, preparing us to become one with him, the day of atonement is also the wedding of the lamb with his bride. And then after the bride is wedded and brought into oneness with the groom, then he comes and we celebrate the wedding supper of the lamb. But he cannot wed to himself either a child infant bride or a corrupt and filthy bride. He has to prepare his bride and cleanse her to be united with him. And that's what's happening right now. Wow. Any questions about that? So I guess I'm going to go ahead and and we'll stop there since it's 11 o'clock and I think there's quite a few questions. And uh, there's some other things in the notes. But I thought that was uh, pretty exciting. We have a new sharing magazine coming out. Uh, it is going to print uh, to publication or print in the next week or so, and it is on Christ cleansing His bride. And it, I think you'll find it just—it's beautifully done with the design, and I think you'll find it quite helpful in taking these themes we've talked about here and not only understanding them but sharing them with others. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for, for your love. We thank you for all that you've accomplished in Christ. We thank you for your plan to cleanse and heal each of us from sin. And we invite you in now. We ask for the Holy Spirit to come into our hearts and minds, take away our fear, guilt, shame, renew us in righteousness that our thoughts, will, mind, heart will be united, that you will be in us and we will be in you. We will be in union and we will be your representatives to advance your kingdom at this time in history so that you might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Amen.